Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hi there, Zelda. It's been a while. Hey, Denise. Just enjoying the springtime. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with spring. Is it the allergies? Yes, I hate this time of year. I mean, I love the temperatures. I love how pretty it gets. All the green grass. Oh my gosh, it's so green where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm miserable. (laughs) (laughs) And that's with allergy medicine. So, ugh. (laughs) I hear you. How about you? you? Well, I love everything in bloom, but I hate pollen. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, can't the trees just stop having sex for a few days? <laughs> and when you're allergic to everything that grows outside, it makes it really awful. And mm-hmm. I once had uh, allergists go, well, basically, you're allergic to everything out there. Mm. I'm like, oh, great. Mm. <laughs> no wonder I like air conditioning so much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm kind of excited about who we're talking about today because I had never heard of this person. Yeah. And, you know, I I brought it up on the last episode, but this was suggested by my husband as we were watching um, like the first 48 kind of a redux where they put a few together. Uh And he's like, you need to do that one. And I wasn't sure I'd be able to because he's a more recent person. And and, I mean, he was born in 1960. So... (laughs) I wasn't sure I'd be able to find anything, but I was. So we've got ourselves a show and oh my gosh. And I just rewatched that episode today to remind myself and oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're talking about Terry Blair. So yeah. Grew up in Kansas City, Missouri Mm -hmm. in the middle of a lot of crime and violence. That's putting it mildly, I'd say. Yeah, you know, like we said, we've said before, some of the folks that we talk about, you're like, where did this even come from? How often Mm -hmm. did they get hit in the head? And this is not one of those. This is not one of those. This is one we're like, yeah, yeah, without an extreme intervention at a young age, this was kind of the life he was destined for. Oh, yeah. And when we get to his family, everybody will understand fully (laughs) Why? Well, speaking of his family, I'm just going to jump right on in. That sounds good. One of his brothers, Walter Blair Jr., was executed for committing murder for hire. Previously, he'd been charged with capital murder, robbery, and assault for the death of a 16-year-old. But authorities dropped those charges when all the witnesses refused to testify. Hmm. Strange Uh, that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So that was his brother. His mother, Janice Blair, killed her partner but was given probation after entering an Alford plea. Now, for folks who might not know what an Alford plea is, an Alford plea, it happens in a criminal court. It's it's basically a guilty plea. However, the defendant is able to maintain that they're innocent. There's just enough evidence to convict them. So they'll agree to go ahead and act like they've been convicted. And I look at this and I'm like, I don't know how they decided to arrive at an Alfred for this case. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what happened. And I'll get into more of that when it 
comes to be my turn Excellent. <laughs> on the details. So then he has a half-brother, Clifford Miller, who's currently serving two life sentences plus 240 years for kidnapping, rape, and related charges to that. And he messed the woman up. I mean, she was in the hospital oh, for months. It was yeah. awful. His sister, his sister, so the girls mm -hmm. don't escape this, Warnetta and his brother-in-law, Neola White III, allegedly stabbed an employee of Mr. White's to death to collect on a life insurance policy. Now, where have we heard that before? Oh, so many times. But usually women. Yeah, usually women. But yeah, she was involved. So there you go. Well, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so here's the funny part is she turned state's evidence so the charges against her were dropped. But that's nuts because in Missouri, spouses can't testify against each other. So they gave her an out without getting anything in return. Mm. She was later convicted on a completely separate charge of suffocating her boyfriend, who was her boyfriend at the time this happened, not, you know, obviously. Anyway, right. to steal his money and drugs and did serve 10 years in prison for that. Oh, we there's still more. There's still more. Oh, I know. There's so much. Because more. he was one of 10 children. So it's actually remarkable to me that there are five that I didn't track down with lots of criminal history. I wasn't able to either. So his brother, Daniel Blair, was, you know, convicted of, ste of dealing cocaine. Now, isn't that crazy? Like, everybody <laughs> else is murdering people and stabbing and kidnapping. He was just a plain old drug dealer. But, you know, after he was released, he went on to violate parole and then became, in general, a huge menace to society. I found an article where he was shot in the head by a Carrollton, by Carrollton, Missouri police in 2016 wow. after refusing to drop his gun when ordered to by police. He did survive, but I have no idea what he's doing now. I, I can tell you one thing. He is not in a Missouri prison right now. I checked. That was really smart of you because it didn't <laughs> even occur to me to check. Good I on did. you. <laughs> okay. So now, okay, we've dealt with the siblings, but you know, it's generational. He's had three nephews due time for various crimes. Diamond Blair, his nephew, for armed robbery. William Blair for first degree robbery. And upon release was charged with how many counts? 88 counts of armed robbery and assault for a string of business holdups. Then, get this, his nephew, Neola White IV, was convicted of murdering his own father, the aforementioned Neola White III. Mm -hmm. who had killed one of his employees for the life insurance. Right. So, yeah. So we got Terry Blair here, and he completely followed his murderous family's paths. Oh, but he did it so much more. Oh, yeah, because, you know, why stop at one, right? Right. It's like potato chips, I guess. He later <laughs> oh. said in trial he wanted to kill as many women and prostitutes as possible. He was, you know, um, held for trial for three and a half years before the trial began. In October 2007, charges for the murders of Reed and Harris were dropped. Um, various assault and sexual assault charges were also dropped. After many delays, Blair's trial started on March 10, 2008. In an agreement, prosecutors removed the death penalty and Blair agreed to a trial by judge only. He was convicted. Now, he keeps appealing it periodically and it always gets laughed out of court. But on one of his appeals in 2009, I found an excellent summation of what actually happened uh, and, you know, the, the various crimes he was charged with. So right. I'm just going to share that with you. So in December 2004, Terry A. Blair was charged in Jackson County Circuit Court with eight charges of first degree murder for the 2004 murders of eight women in Kansas City, Missouri. Blair was also charged with first degree assault and three charges of forcible rape. 
Prior to the trial, the state and Blair reached an agreement in which the state would dismiss two of the murder charges, dismiss the assault and forcible rape charges, and not seek the death penalty. In exchange, Blair agreed to permit admission of a witness's statement if she could not be located to testify at trial. Blair waived his right to a jury trial, and on March 27, 2008, after a bench trial, the trial court found Blair guilty of the murders of Shelia McKenzie, Patricia Wilson, Carmen Hunt, Anna Ewing, Darcy Williams, and Claudette Juniel. On April 24, 2008, the trial court entered judgment and sentenced Blair to six consecutive sentences of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Mm. So in this case, he was contesting the sufficiency of the evidence to support his conditions. So those are reported here. In the summer of 2004, throughout the summer of 2004, Blair stayed with his mother who lived at 2449 Prospect with his sister who lived at 1340 West Bluff. The man living above Blair's mother often let prostitutes eat, sleep, and shower at his apartment. Blair's grandmother lived nearby at 2454 Olive, so they're all in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. On September 2004, at approximately 10.39 p.m., an unidentified male made a 911 call from a deactivated cell telephone without a SIM card. It's cute, he explains, meaning no number was attached to identify the phone making the call. <laughs> Because, you know, this was back in 2009. Right. Um, to report a dead body at 29th and Park. This body would later be identified as Carmen Hunt. At trial, a linguistics professor identified the 911 caller as an urban, native English-speaking, African-American male in the lower middle to upper working class. The caller told the 911 dispatcher that the body was in the backyard at the northeast house on the corner. When asked how he knew there was a dead body there, he said, I put it there. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Yeah. The caller refused to identify himself. When he was asked a second time how he knew the body was there, the man stated, because I put the two on 25th and Montgall and I put that one there. In context, the caller is referring to the bodies of Shelley and McKenzie and Patricia Wilson. The caller told the dispatcher the body at 29th and Park was in the backyard of an abandoned house on the corner and it was all the way to the fence by the alley, buried up under tree branches. It's been there for about two months. The caller said he did not know the victim's name, but knew she was a prostitute. The caller again confirmed that he killed the other two prostitutes whose bodies were found at 25th and Montgall and then hung up. On September 4th, 2004, at 6.51 p.m., the same unidentified man, using the same telephone, called 911. The caller told the 911 dispatcher that he called the day before to report bodies and that he was calling again to report two more bodies. <laughs> the caller stated that one body was at 24th and Prospect in the alley ne right next to the gate by the U-Haul place and was covered by black vinyl. This body would later be identified as Darcy Williams. The caller stated the other body was at 27th and Olive and covered with brush and pillows. This body would later be identified as Claudette Juniel. The caller said the victims were prostitutes and that he killed them because they were scum and a disgrace. The caller refused to give his name but told the dispatcher that the body at 27th and Olive had been there about six weeks and that the body at 24th and Prospect had only been there a week. The caller told the dispatcher, you can smell her. Ooh. Yeah. The caller told the dispatcher that he did not know the victims' names but that he was killing these women because they were prostitutes. The caller went on to tell the dispatcher that he put the two bodies at 26th and Montgall, Mackenzie and Wilson, and when asked if there were other victims, the caller mentioned the body found at 23rd and Prospect, Anna Ewing, but said that they found her a long time ago. The cell telephone used to make these two calls, as well as a 911 hang-up call on August 30th, 2004, was a T-Mobile cell telephone stolen from a maintenance company. 
Although the telephone did not have an internal SIM card, all phones have an international mobile equipment identifier and a feature that always follows a cell telephone to dial 911. No further calls were attempted from this cell after it was reported that the police were attempting to track the location of the caller. Officers made test calls with a T-Mobile cell telephone from Blair's mother's apartment and Blair's sister's duplex in an attempt to determine the location of the 911 caller. So, you know, they kind of already knew who it was, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) The officer's test showed that the September 3rd call originated from the south of a cell tower at 18th Street and Prospect. Blair's mother's apartment was directly south of this tower. The August 30th hang-up call and the September 4th call both originated from the north of a tower located at 3330 Roanoke, which Blair's sister's duplex at 1340 West Bluff is directly north of the cell phone tower. During the September 4th 911 call, the sounds of children playing and a train horn could be heard in the background. There are two playgrounds within a short distance of Blair's sister's housing complex, including one just behind her residence. Blair's sister's duplex is also located near several sets of railroad tracks. Train records and GPS coordinates show that a train blew its horn. They really did their research. Yeah. At 6.53 p.m. on September 4th, the 911 call that night started at 6.51. In a location near Blair's sister's duplex, at trial, a friend of Blair's testified that it was possible to hear trains from Blair's sister's duplex. So how did they even get him arrested? Mm-hmm. Well, on September 6th, Cherry Chadborn flagged down police and told them that Blair told her he was going to kill all prostitutes one by one because they were the scum of the earth. Earlier that summer, Blair had paid Chadborn for sex. Mm. Chadborn also told police that Blair had been stalking her and told her what she had been wearing the previous week. Wow. Blair also told Chadborn he had killed his first wife because she had become a prostitute. And I realize, as I write that, I never told about him killing his first wife because she was a prostitute. Yeah, you missed that one. I totally missed that one. I apologize to our dear listeners. That's okay. Wow. There's so much. It's it's not hard to... It's there's He killed so many people. Yes. But his method was basically rape them, then strangle them. So mm-hmm. at least he was consistent. That's pretty typical of a serial killer. So. Mm-hmm. On September 10th, Blair was at a friend's house when his picture was featured in a newscast as a person of interest in a string of murders committed along the Prospect Corridor. Blair's friend pretended she did not recognize him as the person of interest. When Blair left her house, she called the police. Blair later returned to his friend's house and hid in the garage. Police found Blair between the rear of a car and the back of the garage. After his arrest, Blair received the Miranda warnings and agreed to talk to police. Blair was shown pictures of five of his victims. Blair denied having contact with any of the victims or being at any of the locations where the bodies were found. Blair would later state that he recognized Darcy Williams and that he had seen her 10 or 11 days earlier. Blair denied ever having sex with Williams. Blair also denied ever having sex with any of the victims or any prostitute, except for a woman named Peaches, who he paid (laughs) for sex in 2002. Wow. He also denied he made the anonymous 911 phone calls. He told police that on September 3rd and 4th, when the calls were made, he was helping his mother move out of her apartment and stayed with his sister. So placed him in those areas, but he said he didn't make the calls. Right. And what the trial court here or the appellate court here had to decide was, was there sufficient evidence? And sufficient evidence did exist to support all six of Blair's convictions for first degree murder. Mm -hmm. Mainly that his DNA was all over the women. Yes. (laughs) And it's like he's going... He was like, oh, no, I never had sex with these women. Then why is your semen all over them? Yeah. yeah and, and the police had arrested him before the DNA came back. Mm-hmm. We got it right. Yep. Yeah. They had arrested him on a 
parole violation, which was, you know, it's a common way actually to to deal with people who are on parole. Right. And they think they suspect them of something else as they arrest him for something completely unrelated, but then they're able to get his DNA. Mm-hmm. And with one of the women, he's like, well, I had sex with her, but I didn't kill her, you know, and we were completely far away. And they actually brought in, and I read the incredibly detailed and disgusting account of how they knew that that's not the truth. And no. so trust me, they knew. So anyway, he is serving lots of time in jail. And this is one family that I hope I never run into. I don't blame you. I find it interesting. You said he, he said that uh, he had had sex with her in 2002. Peaches. Yeah. Well, that would be interesting because he wasn't paroled until t- January 2004, according to something that I That is read. interesting. So, yeah, but it's in the court record that he said that. Yeah. I, he's not... I mean, it could yeah, be that... Yeah, so he's the, just lying. It could be my source was incorrect, or it could be he was just so blatant about the lying that... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's face it. He was doing drugs. His mind was mush. And he was killing people. And so, you know, stuff gets mixed up sometimes. You know? Yeah. And if anybody wants to hear the 911 calls that he made. Yeah. You need to watch the first 48, season two, episode one. Oh, my gosh. And I'm going to have a link to it on our website. So you hear them there. Yeah. So that's that's what I have. The summation of this crazy shit family and this crazy man mm-hmm. who honestly, but for... I mean, honestly, if they hadn't intervened when he was little, there was no hope for this man. I it's it's such a mess, and I don't know if intervention was highly possible. We'll get into everything. We're gonna kind of jump around a little bit on his tree. Um, we'll get to his immediate family, like his mom and his siblings, at the end, because that's okay. the biggest mess of them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I do have a few quick notes. Um, I did find a pattern of multiple marriages. And as we you just discussed, the contemporary family members were surrounded by violence. And the big question is why? Mm-hmm. Why were they violent? I mean, what mm-hmm. started that pattern? We may never know. I don't even know that mm-hmm. what I'm going to tell you is going to help figure that mm-hmm. out. Yeah. But circumstances where they lived, they were a poor family in general. But there's a lot of poor families that are out there that never resort to this level of violence. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot more going on than we will ever know. Um, But before I start, I want to mention that finding information on this family, oh my gosh, using only online resources was extremely difficult. Yeah. And I don't know if it's due to poor record keeping, particularly in Mississippi, Mm -hmm. or at least the area of Mississippi I did the research for. Or because his family is black. Mm-hmm. I started to feel my privilege while researching. Because I have not hit as many walls with white families as I have had with this family. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be unique to this family. That I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the the lack of paperwork, the lack of documents, the lack of all this stuff really made it a challenge. Now, I had anticipated hitting blocks and walls once I hit the antebellum period. An- antebellum period. Mm-hmm. You know, I should be able to say that word. Um, I But I thought I would find the family without a problem until I got to that period. Until I mm-hmm. at least got to 1870. I 
thought thought I'd have a clear road. I mean, if I ran into a common last name, then I would hit those types of blocks, but I did not anticipate what did happen. So this was the first time I've ever done research in Mississippi. It could be this is standard fare for the area, but I actually contacted a well-respected historian who's a professor at an Ivy League university. And what I came to believe is that what I ran to may be typical for a lot of black families out there. And it's frustrating enough that these families may not go beyond 1870, but to reach roadblocks much sooner upsets Mm -hmm. me for them. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine how they feel. So I'm going to throw this out there. If you are of African American descent, I can't promise you to get far, but I'm willing to give you some of my time for free to help you out in researching your family tree. So if you are interested, just go ahead and contact us through the website or through the email podcast at murderousroots.com. So part of the struggle in finding family members had to do with lack of documents. And the other might be based on culture of the times. In the book, Bound and Wedlock, Slave and Free Black Marriages in the 19th Century by Dr. Tara Hunter, the historian I actually contacted, Many local jurisdictions throughout the South demand high fees to discourage ex-slaves from marrying or simply refuse to give them access to courts or licenses. Mm. So that could have been part of the reason I was struggling. But we also have to consider that they went through this long era of slavery where there was no formal marriage because it wasn't legal. Mm -hmm. And some of those relationships might have continued in that way because that's what they had always done. (laughs) I was really surprised that the local jurisdictions would prevent marriages or try to stop them from marrying legally. Although I guess it's not surprising, given that slave owners believed that black people were A, not people, but a whole other race of beings, and B, that black people were unable to make familial attachments. But as you and I both know, many slave owners did whatever they could to prevent attachments. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they couldn't form them. It was yet another way to deny their humanity. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe the lack of paperwork applied to only marriage records either. Um, I would have problems finding death records. Now, granted, Mississippi only has like a 15-year span on some records. (laughs) Like, you could get death records between 1930 and 1945. Okay, that's not very helpful. (laughs) That's not the only issue I struggled to even find graves for many of the people we'll discuss today. And I had to do a deep dive to figure out why I hit so many walls, even on graves. And I learned a little bit about the history of African-American cemeteries. And it was kind of interesting. And I'm going to provide a link that goes a little bit more in depth on the website. But during the time of slavery, most slaves were buried at night in part because it was the only time they might have to themselves, and also so more people can join them from some of the neighboring plantations. They might get permission for certain Mm -hmm. place areas. And these men and women were also buried at the edges of a plantation on non-arable land. Mm. You don't want to bury them where you can plant crops, you know. Not only that, but not everyone had a grave marker with a name on it. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, a grave might be marked with a plant, a tree, or even a wooden post. And they had this belief that in this way, death would not be the end, which I think is pretty fantastic, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although for a genealogist and me, it's frustrating because I don't know that tree symbolizes Sue, but you know, 
And after slavery ended, this tradition often continued. So finding a marker might be impossible, but it makes sense given their culture. I, I just felt like I had to go on a little bit of a soapbox there to cover that so people understand the frustration. And I've got to be honest, this is the first time I've researched a black family from beginning to end, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I had the experience and I want to do it again because you don't learn without trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'll get better with time. Anyhow, so we're going to start with Terry Anthony Blair's father, who was Walter Lawrence Blair Sr., And he was a Tupelo, Mississippi native born in 1939. Do you know what famous person was close to his age and also grew up in Tupelo, Zelda? Would it be Elvis? Yes, ma'am. I went on a pilgrimage to Graceland once. It was awesome. Oh, I have never been. It's pretty awesome. Cool. I won't lie. Well, Elvis Aaron Presley was just four years older than Walter. There's even a slim chance they may have met as Elvis lived in a largely black neighborhood by the time he was in sixth grade. Interesting. Yeah, but it's almost impossible for me to determine that because the streets the Blairs lived on at that time no longer exist. Mm. One of my favorite things to do when I get to the later censuses, because they had the addresses on them, is to go onto Google Maps and look and see what the area looks like. Mm -hmm. And every street I put on there does not exist. Oh, man. So I have no idea where it was. So there you go. Anyhow, Walter, again, this is Terry's dad, was not born alone. Nope, he had a twin. And I'm not, I have no idea if they were identical or fraternal. Um, but his twin's name was Wilson Jr. And he also had an older brother, Charlie. But I believe that he may have died as a child since mm-hmm. I saw no evidence of him after the 1940 census. And I actually did find school records for Walter and Wilson. And I found none for Charlie. So that makes mm. me think that. But by 1935, it seems that the Blair family had left Mississippi and were living in Crittenden County, Arkansas. That is just to the west of Memphis. Hmm. Yeah, they were wanting to go visit their friend Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) So twin Wilson Jr. married Alvera Chalmers in 1958 in Crittenden. Eventually, Wilson, his wife and children, he ended up having seven, um, as well as Wilson and Walter's parents, would move north, settling in St. Louis. Walter, though, went to the opposite side of Missouri and headed to Kansas City. Now, while Wilson stayed in Missouri for the remainder of his life, not so much with Walter. He was less inclined to stay in one place. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On May 6, 1960, Walter married 18-year-old single mother Janice Philly Miller in Kansas City. They had their first child, Walter Lewis Blair Jr., four months later in September. At least... I believe it was their first child. We'll get back to that later because did I mention that this tree while I hit walls was also very confusing? (laughs) (laughs) That does not shock me. No, I guess it wouldn't. The marriage of Walter and Janice appears to have been a short one. By December 1961, just a month after Terry Blair was born, I found an article in the Kansas City Star indicating that Walter Sr., had been in prison. Mm. Walter had been sentenced to a year in jail for child abandonment. Ah. Yep. And so on this day in December, he and three other men were being released on bench paroles with promises that they obtain jobs and make the required child support payments. Mm. I'm not sure if he actually did or what happened from there and on out, much less what type of role he played in his children's lives. 
But based on an obituary, I know they at least knew where he lived. Okay. But that's all I know. Okay. By 1987, possibly earlier, Walter was living in North Las Vegas, Nevada, where he stayed for several years. And he might have married there, but apparently there was another Walter Blair in the Mm. area as well. So it was hard to determine if it was him. Then in the 1990s, Walter returned to Tupelo, where he died in 2001 at the age of 61. Mm -hmm. Did he kind of stay out of jail for most of his life or was he in and out? Um, I think he stayed out. Oh, good. But I didn't find any newspaper reports on him making it back in jail. Okay. But I also wasn't quite sure where he was. Between 1961 and 1987, it wasn't very clear. Now, the Blair family spent many years in Mississippi before Wilson moved north to Arkansas and then on to Missouri. And when they were in Mississippi, they were a family of farmers, likely sharecroppers living in the Jim Crow South, with Walter and Wilson even attending a, oh, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to say it anyway, a colored only school. Hmm. Although I'm not sure that improved once they got to Arkansas or Missouri Mm -hmm. because it's pre-civil rights era. The twins' father was Wilson Blair Sr., the seventh child of parents Mossy Blair and Lizzie Merritt. But he was not the last child. His youngest sibling, the tenth child, Francis, was likely born in 1925 after the death of Father Mossy. Although he could have died right after her birth, the date's unclear. So Wilson grew up in a full household led by his single mother, Lizzie, who kept farming after the death of her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Wilson, in 19, around 1937, married Ruth Ella Scott. I don't know when, because again, this is where I start running into paperwork issues. I couldn't find any record of a marriage. They had only three children, as far as I can tell, without the 1950 census, which comes out next spring. Uh-huh. But it doesn't help me today. Um, Ruth was the third oldest child in her family of six children, born to Eddie Scott and Deborah Campbell. I couldn't go much further back other than identifying all of Terry's second great-grandparents on this line, all former slaves, mm. Wilkin and Ellen Scott Sr., and Fred Campbell and Ella Lee. Mm. Now, this is where things were a bit muddy and confusing, so just bear with me, please. <laughs> I'm going to try to explain it as best I can. Um, Wilson's father was Mossy, or maybe it was even Morsi. I saw it written two different ways. And he was born in 1890. He married, again, there's no marriage record I could find, Hattie in 1908. On the 1910 census, it notes that they lived in Buena Vista, Mississippi. It's a really tiny community south of Tupelo. And they lived with his sister, Lola. Now, he and Lola worked as farm laborers. His wife, Hattie, she worked as a farmer and was listed as an employer. Mm. So it's like she was employing her husband and his sister to work on the farm. Mm. I found that interesting. This is also one of the censuses, the other one being 1900, where they asked women how many children they had given birth to and how many were still living. Hattie had given birth to two children. None were living. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. It's likely that Hattie died between 1910 and 1914, as Mossy married Lizzie Merritt in 1914. Now, here's the part that leaves me a bit confused. In the 1920 census, Mossy and Lizzie have seven children, the oldest being 12. So the oldest would have been born in 1908. But on the 1910 census, he had no children. All had the last name Blair. So this begs the question, where did the oldest three or four Clara, Dolly, Edward, and possibly Luella come from. I suspect they were Lizzie's children, but 
and Mossy gave them their last name because they continued on with those names, I'm unable to confirm a thing because I can't even find Lizzie in the 1910 census or mm. even the 1900 census. In fact, I'm not sure who her parents were. Mm. Although I do suspect that they might have been first initial B, Merritt, and Francis. If that's true, then she have an older brother named Fayette. But this is merely supposition due to a lack of documents, because there's also a few other possibilities. And I can't even remember why I came to that conclusion. It was possibly them. I know I had a good reason, but I forgot to write a note. Why? Uh This is why when you do genealogy, take notes so you can understand your thinking (laughs) later on. I write where I find stuff. I don't always take notes on my mental jumps. So there you Uh go. The furthest back I got on the Blairs was to Terry's great-great-grandfather, Dennis Blair, who was born in Mississippi, and he was also a former slave. There were so many white Blairs in the area who put humans in bondage with young boys his age, I wasn't able to narrow down who his captors were in the short amount of time I took to research. Okay. I'm sure if I had months, I could probably gradually narrow it down. But I'm doing this with like a two-week turnaround, so it's not as easy. After slavery came to an end, though, and Dennis came of age, Dennis married Elizabeth Marchbanks, and she went by the name Betty, in February 1872. And this was an actual marriage record I did find. Oh, yay! It was so exciting. I'm not certain if they had any children, but Betty died within three years of their marriage. Oh. Or at least seems to have died since Dennis married again... Elsie Ella Hardy, Terry's second great-grandmother, in November 1875 in Monroe County, Mississippi. And Monroe County, I believe, is to the east of Tupelo. Now, here's the thing about Elsie. Elsie, when she married, was 11 years old. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And, yes, all evidence points to her being that young. Because I kept going, there's no way this can be right. There's no way this can be right. It's correct. Although I do hope there was an error made somewhere, but she was 11. As for how old Dennis was, that's really hard to determine. Because in the 1900 census, his birth is listed as March 1860. But in 1910, by his age he gave, he was born in 1843. Oh my gosh. Yeah, 17-year gap. In the 1920 census, it said he was born in 1847. So I have no idea how old he was when he married Elsie. And it could be he didn't even know the exact year of his birth, Mm -hmm. given that he had been a slave. Mm -hmm. So he was anywhere from age 15, which I highly doubt, to 34 when he got married to her. Wow. I believe he was born at least in 1850, which would make him around 25. Mm -hmm. I'm unsure how many children Dennis and Elsie had, as I was unable to find them in the 1880 census. And there was no 1890 census. Well, There was, but it kind of burned up, and now we no longer have access to most of it. The first child I found in the 1900 census was a son, Charlie, born in 1887. Now, in that census, Elsie stated that she had given birth to 14 babies, but that only seven lived. Oh my God, that poor woman. All of whom who currently lived in the house. So they had seven children living in the house. So I'm not sure if there was mass casualties with her children Mm -hmm. and a lot of loss. Or if the question was misunderstood Mm -hmm. and that she had seven children living elsewhere. Mm. Okay. But if the number was correct, that means Elsie would end up, would end up having 16 children all before she turned 41. Wow. Yeah. 
by 19... 19- well, he certainly didn't keep his hands off her till she was old enough to have babies. Well... Wow. That's if... Yeah. I mean, and for all I know, I mean, it's possible he could have waited a couple of years until she was older. I have a lot of questions I have on this, but I'll get to that a little bit later. By 1910, though, there they had two girls and eight boys still living. One thing I noticed early on with this line of the family that both angered and saddened me on their behalf was their lack of education. Mm-hmm. And I think I even sent out a post on it on social media. I doubt this had to do with a lack of desire to learn, but more likely a lack of opportunity, especially if they were sharecroppers. In order to make ends meet, the whole family worked the farm, at least everyone aged six and up. Mm -hmm. With everyone working, that meant none of the children attended school. And it turns out the family was illiterate through 1910, perhaps even longer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I just was so angry, so upset for them. I'm like, the opportunity, education, just being able to read and write would give them mm-hmm. and how many things could have been, they could have been different ways they could have been taken advantage of. I'm just I was mm-hmm. upset. I want to mention why this upset me because when doing research on my own family and some families we have discussed in the past, I have noticed family members in white families unable to read or write. Several actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> education was often tied to financial well-being. In some ways, it still is today. Mm-hmm. In fact, finding family members unable to read and write in the 19th century was commonplace for many families, but especially for poor families. Mm-hmm. But by the 20th century, it became increasingly rare to run into this because the government started to push the notion of schooling. In fact, by 1920, the question wasn't asked on the census anymore. And it had been there since 1870. Can you read? Can you write? The question would be added again in 1930, but removed by the 1940 census. For the Blair family, not only did the children work in the fields, they did not attend school, much less read or write. Well, not until the 1930 census, that is. And and that was the first time I saw children in this family on a consistent basis attending school. Oh, and you can tell there was a push by the government for for schooling because on the 1940 census, a question asked was, um, and they asked every person, what was the last grade completed in school? And you'll go through and it's fascinating. You'll see a lot of men and women older saying, I made it to second grade. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> so yeah. many, so many. Anyhow, Elsie died sometime before 1910, possibly with the birth of her youngest around 1905. Dennis would marry one more time around 1911 to Mrs. Maddie Cockenham. Oh, I said that wrong. Mrs. Maddie Cockerham, <laughs> who happened to live with him in 1910. She was listed as his sister-in-law in 1910. When they married, he was 57. She was 27. Well, then. Yeah, he liked him young. Mm-hmm. Dennis died be sometime between 1920 and 1930. Now, while I was unable to go any further back with the Blair family, I was able to go just a little bit further with Dennis's wife, Elsie Ella Hardy. Her parents were Albert Allen and Cindy Hardy, Terry's third great-grandparents. Albert, who was born in 1832, and Cindy, born in 1840, were former slaves, who likely never formally married as they may have come together as slaves. Um, And slaves were not allowed to marry. In the 1870 census, Albert said his parents had been born in South Carolina. Cindy noted her mother was born in Virginia and her father in Mississippi. Living with the family was Priscilla Hardy. She was age 50 and born in Virginia. Priscilla had a daughter and a grandchild also living with them. 
I believe Priscilla was Cindy's mother. Mm. Um, but I have no way to prove that. And since they had all been held as slaves, they could have all shared the same last name. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't necessarily have to be with the same Hardy family or a Hardy family at all. Some former slaves would pick a last name for themselves once they had been released from slavery. And there were some who just are like, nope, I'm not going to use the person who owned me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to create my own name or find a name. Mm -hmm. um, according to the 1870 and 1880 censuses, the couple had eight children starting in at least 1859 before Cindy died around 1872. Mm -hmm. Albert would remarry in August 1873 to Jane Mitchell. She was 23. He was 41. And hmm. uh, yeah. As far as I can tell, they never had any children of their own. Mm. Sometimes I think there were marriages of convenience or even protection. I suspect that the marriage of Elsa and Dennis was not a love situation, but rather a way to ease a financial burden for Albert Hardy or some such situation. Mm -hmm. So he found somebody who was willing to take her. They would be married. So it was proper. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that she was just an 11 year old little girl and given that my daughter turns 10 this week i just mm -hmm. can't <laughs> i just can't but anyhow, yeah we'll we'll never know um i'm pretty sure that the reason for the marriage to jane had to do with him needing a wife to care for his young children mm -hmm. so he chose a young wife mm -hmm. now two of my favorite shows and i have lots of favorites but two of my favorites are who do you think you are and finding your roots I love those. They're great, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And I love them both for different reasons. But I've learned a lot by watching the shows, new places to do research on. I'm always taking mental notes as I watch. Mm -hmm. And I've actually gotten, my husband laughs at me. I'll get off and go, well, why didn't they look there to find this? Let me go look and see if I can find it. <laughs> uh, I, I might be a genealogy nerd. That might be a sign. <laughs> Anyhow. One thing I enjoy about Finding Your Roots is when they research a person of African descent. Dr. Henry Gates is so wonderful, and he's taught me a few tips when researching a black family. And I've taken those notes for future use, just in case. Mm -hmm. So Terry's family was truly the first time I put those tips into action, and I believe I struck gold, Ooh. so to speak. Yay! So knowing that the Hardy family lived in Monroe County, Mississippi in 1870, I thought it likely they had lived there prior to the Civil War. It's not guaranteed, but likely. So I searched for any white Hardys in the area in 1850 and 1860, and in particular, any white Hardys that owned slaves in 1850 and 1860, because they had the slave schedules taken then, where they would just list the gender and the age. Unfortunately, no names, but you know. Then I turned to wills and probate records. Most slaves are listed by slave owners who died before the end of the Civil War in these records. And as I searched through hundreds of pages, I found an Albert mm. listed under a Hardy's will. Ah, Actually, not a will, a probate record, but there you go. In October 1860. And so what this means is I think I might have found the slave owner who had Albert. Wow. And his name was Henry Hardy. Before his death in 1860, Henry had a large estate, one that took a few years to sort through based on the probate rate records I searched through. Henry was married to Elizabeth, and they had several children. He was likely 87 at his death. On the 18th, and that kills me though, he's 87 when he dies, and he, he died intestate. 
So I had to go <laughs> and probate. Most people do die without wills. That's true. But I mean, when you have a large estate, especially back then, I mean, come on. Yeah, I know. Everybody, listeners, listeners, it costs very little to have a will made. Mm-hmm. And you can go to like freewill.com and like whip one together yourself. I don't actually recommend that. But, right. you know, you can at least see what goes into it. Because, I mean, even now, less than half per, half of the country, half of the people who die have a will. Oh, my goodness. It's such a mess going through the probate records because it mm-hmm. takes years to sort through. Mm-hmm. It can, absolutely. And this, because of the size of this estate, this took years to sort through. Now, on the 1860 census, taken after he's died, I found Elizabeth. And I noticed that the land that she lived on, which had been his land, was valued at $6,000 at the time. Oh. And it would probably be worth at least a million dollars today, the Mm. land. Now, just proving appreciation of land versus money, the personal estate was valued at $18,000, which is worth about half a million today. So the 6000 turned into a million, mm-hmm. and the 18000 turned into a half a million. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the reason the personal estate was so large is because he owned so many slaves. Mm. Yes. They owned 16 slaves in 1860, and all of them were not listed in the will. I, f- just, I found it interesting. From the probate record, though, I found that Albert was sold to Ben T. Reese, son-in-law of Henry Elizabeth, for $1,500. Oh, wow. And he was 26 at the time, which fits the timeline. Okay. While I did find Albert, I did not find Cindy and their two children that were alive at that time. Now, they could have, it could be that Cindy and the children lived with a different Hardy family or a different family altogether, but they were close, the plantations or something, or they had been recently split apart. I don't know. Um, And being split apart was a common ploy slave owners would use. So that they would not form those familial attachments. Mm -hmm. Just makes me sick. Oh, and one more thing. It's likely that Albert was blind, at least at one point, because in 1860 on the slave schedule, it had a section, are they deaf, dumb, or blind, and marked next to a black male, age 26, and it was only one of those who was age 26 and a black male, they had it marked blind. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And yet he sold for that much money? Yeah. That's why I found interesting. Huh. And he, there was a couple other who sold maybe a little bit more than him, but he was on the high end. Wow. For prices. Curious. Yeah. Now, we're going to head over to the maternal line for Terry. Okay. And I did not have as many issues finding the family of Terry's mother, Janice Billy Miller, as I did his father. Namely because there are more online records available in Missouri. Yay, Missouri. Versus Mississippi. However, that doesn't mean this tree was easy. (laughs) In fact, at times it was extremely frustrating. Pull your hair out. Frustration. Heck, I'm still not even positive on who Janice's father was. Mm. So, we'll start with her mom. Terry's maternal grandmother, Ruby Irene Payne. Hmm. Ruby was born on June 23rd, 1911 in Lafayette County, Missouri. It's a county that lies just to the east of Kansas City and its county, Jackson. At the age of 18, Ruby married Jesse McGee. I have zero information on Jesse McGee other than he married Ruby. Mm. I, yeah, very frustrated. The couple would have three children, Barbara, 
Jesse Lee, and Cecil Edward. Then husband Jesse just disappears, so likely dying before 1935. But the most frustrating part for me on this is I could not find his death certificate. Oh. And in Missouri, it's not that hard to find a death certificate. Mm -hmm. I first noticed Jesse's absence on the 1940 census. And there was a fourth child listed who was born July 4th, 1935, Floyd Russell McGee, that I naturally assumed was Jesse's son as well. However, upon finding Floyd's death record on the California Death Index... I realized my assumption was wrong. Mm. As the last name of Floyd's father was Jackson, not McGee. Ah. But he went by Floyd McGee. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I don't know anything more than that. Like the first name without a death certificate. So either Jesse died or he left Ruby after it came out she was pregnant or gave birth to the child of another man. Mm -hmm. We may never know. But I'm guessing the former. I'm guessing that he had actually died, though, since I can't find him in 1940 or even later. Okay. Um, Ruby would keep the last name McGee until her death, and she was listed as a widow in 1940. But again, that's not a given because you would find a lot of women in particular listing themselves as widows after a divorce Mm -hmm. because it wasn't socially acceptable to to be divorced. As for Janice Miller, Terry's mom... Her father was listed as Leon Miller on the Social Security Applications and Claims Index for Janice. Of course, I was unable to locate a Leon Miller. <laughs> I mean, I told you, I just say, oh. But I did find an Lee Allen Miller, hmm. born in 1905 from Lafayette County. It seems possible that this was her father. As family members doing their trees... Before I go any further, when I, I always say don't follow other people's trees, and I don't. On this, though, Terry Blair's tree, there aren't that many trees of him. Mm-hmm. There's like four or five, and it all seems to be family members mm-hmm. who've been working on this. So I tend to believe that a little bit more, mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, especially since it's such a small number, but... A lot of those family members doing the trees believe that he is the father of Janice. I'm not going to say he is for certain, but we're going to work on the supposition that he might be. Lee worked in the kitchen of a military academy in Lexington, Missouri in 1940. And he was also in 1940 married to Joe Hannah. And they had one daughter, Nina, who may still be living. Oh, wow. Now, I have no evidence that one Lee ever married Ruby, or that too, he ever divorced his wife, especially given that she was the informant on his death certificate. Ah. And it was listed as Mrs. Joe Miller. Hmm. So if this is the father of Janice, then it was part of an extramarital affair. Lee died when Janice was just seven years old. On October 29, 1949, Lee Allen Miller died of a coronary embolism at the age of 44. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, Ruby never married again, nor had more children. Um, She did live to see her daughter and grandchildren arrested, though. Oh, God, that poor woman. I know. Ruby died at age 97 in 2008. Oh, my God. She lived a long life. And I don't think she had a reputation for being a criminal. No. Huh. Just 
might have had an extramarital affair. That's the worst, uh, you know. Wow. And that's a big maybe. I don't mm-hmm. want to besmirch Lee Allen if he wasn't the father. Mm-hmm. It's just a theory. It could have been a Leon Miller that we just disappeared. Now, is Janice Blair still alive? No, she's not. Okay. She died before her mother. Oh, okay. We'll get there in a little bit, though. Okay. I had a lot to sort through with Ruby's family because it did get very confusing. And there were situations where multiple different parents for children. Mm-hmm. Um, but be, just to go back in the line for her family, we're going to start with the basics. Ruby's father was Kellis Bud Payne, and Bud was the grandson of Kellis Payne, so Terry's third great-grandfather. Kellis would likely have been born in 1810 in Virginia. Since I have no information on where in Virginia mm-hmm. um, that the Paynes came from, I was unable to figure out what family Kellis was owned by. Okay. Especially given the sheer number of white slave-owning families named Payne in 1810 Virginia. Mm-hmm. There were a lot. I might be able to narrow it down eventually, but not on the podcast timeline. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no guarantee his last name, he was owned by Paynes anyway, because it could have been that he was sold to a Payne family who came west. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. I do know about Kellis, though, because his name was listed on his son, and this is Bud's father, Reuben Payne's death certificate. Mm. Reuben, so Bud's father, was born in Virginia in July 1827. I do not know how he got to Missouri, whether the trip came before the Civil War with his owners or after on his own. What I do know is Reuben married Nancy Brown, who was 17 years his junior around 1881. And it was likely not a first, his first marriage. But again, there's not a whole lot of paperwork. And that's the first I find him. And uh, this is according to the 1900 census. The couple had at least three children with Bud being the oldest. The youngest was Vesta. Now Vesta would marry Henry Barner and have at least one son, William Christopher. I know she had at least one more child, but do not know what happened to the baby. And I know this because Vesta died at the young age of 24, of postpartum hemorrhaging. Oh my God. Yeah, it's awful. Reuben would live until the age of 92 in Odessa, Missouri. Hmm. And his wife preceded him in death, likely before 1910. So he lived a long life. What confuses me most, though, (laughs) is Bud, who is the great-grandfather of Terry. Bud was born in 1878, three years before his parents claimed to have been married. Ah, Mm-hmm. Now, I got his parent names from his death certificate. So, frustratingly, I have been unable to find Reuben or Bud or even Nancy on the 1880 census to clarify matters. So, I have questions. <laughs> Was Bud the son of Reuben and a past wife? The person filling out the death certificate didn't know mm-hmm. because he was raised by Nancy. Mm-hmm. So, they, you know. Yeah. Or were... Um, were Reuben and Nancy together, but not officially married until 1881. So when I asked on the census, when did you get married? They were honest and said, well, we've been married this long, mm-hmm. but they've been together longer. Mm-hmm. There's so many, I mean, there's so many possibilities. I mm-hmm. just don't know. For all I know, it could have been Nancy's son. Who? T- yeah. Mm-hmm. Only DNA would tell. And, you know, I don't have that. <laughs> so as for Bud, he was born in Mayview, Missouri. 
and on December 22, 1897, in Lexington, he married Jeanette Washington. The marriage would produce at least one son, James, in 1900. Now, there was another son listed in 1910, an Edward B. Payne, but I discovered a newspaper article declaring Bud Ed's guardian ah. based off a of probate. So I, I don't know about that one either. Anyhow, Jeanette died likely before 1905. Okay. Now, one of my favorite resources is the state of Missouri's Secretary of State archives. Ah. Mm-hmm. Particularly their death certificates, because you can access for anybody who's died in Missouri between 1910 and 1970 and call it up and just, <laughs> it's awesome. So I, I've used that a lot with my family because a lot of my family was from Missouri. Um, as was yours, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a little trick I use to find people when I'm wanting to know more information. So, for example, a lot of my family came from Crawford County, Missouri. And I have been known to put the last name of an ancestor. And Crawford County is not a big county, so this is easy to do it on. But put that last name, put the specify what county, and just go through every death certificate. Because uh-huh. I can even I can even narrow it down by timeline. But I'm looking for our connections to my family. Oh, when nice. I do that. So it's it's a trick. I do it on other things too, but it's a a great way of finding more than you would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, I did this in in Lafayette County with the Payne family to see if I could find any more Paynes that I was missing. Now, I would not do this in a county such as Jackson County, Missouri or St. Louis Mm -hmm. County, Missouri, because they're just so large, unless Mm -hmm. I had an unusual last name. So while I was doing this, I stumbled on something a bit surprising for the time. Was there a postmaster involved? No postmasters in this family. I am so sorry. Oh, man. So, but we're going to take a quick step back first. On February 10th, 1910, Bud married again, this time to Annie May. Well, it seems that Bud had an intimate relationship prior to his marriage to Annie May. Now, that's not unheard of or a bad thing, but... The woman he had relations with, a Mrs. Myrtle Hughes, possibly a widow, was pregnant with their son Clifford on the day he married Annie May. Awkward. And the child was born one month to the day after the wedding. <gasps> really awkward. Yes. And I have to wonder if Annie ever knew. Mm-hmm. Because I did find Myrtle and Clifford in the 1910 census. And he's listed as Clifford Hughes. Hmm. But on the death certificate, he's listed as Clifford Payne, his father, Bud Payne. Interesting. I discovered this while going through the death certificates in Lafayette County. And poor little Clifford died at age eight. Oh. His cause of death was pneumonia with tuberculosis, a contributing factor. And I can't help but wonder if he was an early victim of the Spanish flu in April 1918. Mm. It had started in March 1918, mm-hmm. not too far in Kansas, so it's a yeah. possibility. And he was just so young. Now, back to Bud and Annie Mae Payne, the couple would have three children, the first being Ruby Irene, Terry's grandmother. Then Bud died in February 1926 of stomach cancer at age 47. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, this is an interesting mix of people who live very short lives and people who live very long lives. It is. There's a lot of short lives, but there are some of the very long ones. And you're like, wow. Mm -hmm. 
Um, from that point on, I had problems tracking Annie. I wasn't even certain of her last name. I found their marriage record, but surely there had to have been a mistake because it had to make her last name as being Payne. So I thought, well, maybe somebody just put it down because that's who she married, so on and so forth. So I knew I wanted to verify and find more about her, and I was getting stuck. And I was stuck for a long time. And the biggest struggle I faced was trying to find her after the death of her husband, much less finding her death certificate. Because as I said, she's in Missouri. Mm -hmm. I figured she probably didn't live past 1970. I should be able to find something. So where did she go? Eventually, though, I sorted it all out this past weekend, in fact, when I found a clue that untangled the knot. So here it goes. Three years after the death of Bud, Annie remarried a man named Silas Jackson in October 1929. The marriage didn't last overly long with a couple divorced before 1937. Annie would marry one more time, Earl Morton, in 1937, just three months after his wife, Orabelle, died of acute indigestion with paralysis of the arms and hands. That's not suspicious, is it? That sounds like arsenic. It does. Acute indigestion and then paralysis. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Aura might have been poisoned to me. Wow. Yeah. That's really strange. It is. Did she have a life insurance policy? I don't know those details. Okay. They weren't suspicious of it, though. Yeah. Clearly. Because he got married three months later. <laughs> and wow. nobody blinked an eye. I know. Earl died in 1950 at age 57. Annie would live 11 years longer, never marrying again until, and died at age 77. Now, as I mentioned earlier, part of my confusion with Annie rested on her maiden name. Was it really pain? I mean, it couldn't possibly be the same as her husband, right? Wrong. I'm just hoping it wasn't his sister. This is No, like... gosh, no, 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 <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> I did get nervous for a second, though. And here's why. Annie's, because I found her last husband. And I found him through um, an obituary for one of her sons. Now, census takers sometimes wrote down names wrong. Mm -hmm. And on the census, I can't remember which census it was. They wrote um, one of her sons as Winterfield. Mm. There was no Winterfield pain. Oh. I don't remember how I found it exactly, but his actual name was Winfort. Ah. I I think it was on an obituary of another brother or something. So then I looked at him and I found his obituary and it named his mom as being Annie Mae Morton. And I'm like, I can find her now. Yay. (laughs) So I found Annie's death certificate and it gave me the information I needed. Kind of. You see, her daughter, Ruby, Terry's grandmother, was the informant on the death certificate. And being that all her grandparents on that side had the last name Payne. I think she got a little confused Ah. because she gave the name of her grandmother, Annie's mom, as Mary. That ended up being correct. And but then said the father's name was Reuben. And that would have been the same as the other. But it wasn't. I think she just confused the two. Because knowing at least his the mother's name of Annie Mae, I was able to find information on the Payne family. So Annie was the oldest child of at least five to Thornton Payne and Mary Ann New. Thornton had been a former slave born in Virginia on September 15, 1855. Mary Ann, though, was born at the end of slavery in 1864 in Missouri. And I did find the following article about Thornton, though. 
There's an actual article? Mm-hmm. That's exciting. It is. He would have been 49 at the time of this article. If this is about him, I guess it's possible it could be about a son that I missed, but I don't think so. Um, it's in, from the Lexington Intelligencer, August 20th, 1904. So, and the article is a black man shooting scrape. A black man shooting scrape occurred at Dover Saturday night, which resulted in the loss of an eye and one hand to Thornton Payne. Oh my gosh. Payne went to the home of Les Hayden about 12 o'clock Saturday night and attempted to effect an entrance through a window, presumably with the idea of burglarizing the house. Oh, now we know where this all started. Yes. Hayden heard him working on the window and without any warning seized his shotgun and fired through the curtain and window, the load tearing off Perry's right hand, one shot, striking one of his eyes, causing him to lose sight. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. And that's our first hint of criminal activity, really. Wow. And this would be Terry's great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather. Okay. Wow. Now, I saw no indication of jail time for Thornton, although I would imagine there was. Thornton died at age 63 in December 1918, likely a victim of the Spanish flu. Mm. His wife, Mary Ann, would live several more years, dying in 1941 at age 76. And Mary Ann's death certificate gave me the name of her parents, Nelson New and Mary Carey. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I don't have much information on those individuals who had been slaves, but I do know that Nelson died destitute in 1912. Uh, This is also from the Lexington Intelligencer, and this is from January 19th, 1912. Nelson knew an aged and well-known black man of the city was found dead at his home in West Lexington Friday morning. When discovered, the black man was lying on the floor near his bed and was almost destitute of clothes and bedding. New had received a pension from the county court for the last five years. His wife would die the next year. Wow. One last thing before we move on. We discussed Mississippi and the struggle for black Americans and particularly former former slaves there and a little bit here in Missouri. But what I didn't mention was the struggle that the Payne side of the family must have dealt with. You see, Lafayette County was known as Little Dixie because the area was settled by migrants from the South. Ah. In fact, in 1860, 25% of the population were slaves. Oh my gosh. I think it was the largest area of slavery in all Missouri. Wow. And it was very pro-slavery, very pro-Confederacy. And not only that, a pro-white, pro-South newspaper was published there and distributed across the country from 1866 to 1875. The Bastards. It was a weekly paper. It had four pages every week called, are you ready for this? I embraced. The Weekly Caucasian. Oh, dear God. Mm-hmm. <sighs> right? The caucasity of it. <laughs> uh, today, the community is primarily white. 95% white, actually. With only- well, seriously, if you weren't white, wouldn't you get the fuck out of Dodge if you exactly. could? Exactly. I think because- a lot of them headed west to Jackson mm-hmm. County and Kansas City. Yeah. It's like, why do you want to hang around assholes? Right? Right. Exactly. Now it's time to tackle Terry's mother, Janice Billy Miller. And I saved her for last because their tale was a confusing mess to sort through. I'm so glad it was you and not me. (laughs) 
And on top of that, Janice and her children had some issues that you already gave a preview to. And as you know, that's putting it very mildly. (laughs) Mildly. According to various obituaries and newspaper articles, Janice was potentially the mother of 12 children. Interesting. I know. You said 10. Guess what? There were 12. Wow. At the very least, she was likely the mother of 10 or 11. The key question on her children centers on Warnetta, Uratera, Blair, or Nettie, as she went by, or goes by, I should say. Is this the same Warnetta that was married to Neola White? Yes. How do you say that name again? I, it's really Niola. Niola. Okay. I was going Noila. <laughs> Noila. Oh, no, the I goes first. <laughs> Niola. Okay. Anyhow, she was the oldest sibling to Terry. Now, if Janice was the mother of Warnetta, she would have given birth to her at age 14. Mm, This would explain a lot. Yeah, and four years before she married Walter Blair, Mm -hmm. assuming Walter was the father, Mm -hmm. and he, he would have been 17. But I honestly don't know, because two children were born after Warnetta, who had different last names. The other possibility is that Warnetta was Walter's daughter from a prior relationship, and he was a single father. Hmm. Walt, remember, Walter's brother Wilson got married in 1958 in Crittenden County, Arkansas, and he was there with his brother and stuff. I don't know. Was he there then? But if he only would have been 17 when mm-hmm. Warnetta was born. Right. How, I mean, honestly, how would he have gotten custody of her you know especially back then right and then the bigger question is if it was the well i mean there's so many different questions here because Mm -hmm. the biggest question is janice had two more children they had her last name Mm -hmm. after warnetta so why was warnetta warnetta blair but but do we know that she was born warnetta blair that i don't know because warnetta is still alive so Mm -hmm. I don't know what she was born. So that's my question. Did he like take her, adopt her or something mm-hmm. or give him, you know, she take, took her mm-hmm. stepdad's last name, but I don't think so. And I'll tell you why in a second. I'm, mm-hmm. this is very confusing. Okay. I'm, I <laughs> still don't know, but we'll go with what I do know. Janice had two children that were given her maiden name. As her last name, Miller, first Sylvia in 1958, and second Clifford in 1959. The father is unknown to me at this time because everybody's still living and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's harder to find those records. With Walter Blair, as we discussed earlier, she had Walter Jr. and Terry. And she may have had a third child, but that's unlikely given the court-ordered support demand of Walter. Mm-hmm. Because that's the question. <laughs> He had abandoned the children in 1961. Warnetta would have only been five. Would she really want to take her stepfather's last name? Hmm. See what I mean? I'm, it's just so confusing. Janice had seven more children given the last name Blair. Joyce, Michelle, Wanda, Sandra, Angela, Donna Joyce, and Daniel. At least six of these, all but Joyce, may be the children of Janice's common-law husband, Elton Eugene Gray, if his obituary is accurate. Um, as in, were they his children, or he just claimed responsibility for them? I don't I, know. I do feel the need to point out, 
Um, he he was referred to as her common law husband in several mm-hmm. articles that I read, but yeah. Missouri doesn't recognize common law marriages, and so that's why I kind of switched it to partner. Um, ah. because if they had decided to split up, then they wouldn't have had to get a divorce True. or anything like that. It wasn't a legal common law marriage. It was more right. they were together for a long time. Mm-hmm. Might as well have been married. Okay. Right. But anyhow, between 1962 and 1976, that list of children I just gave were all born, including Donna Joyce, who was born in 1966, and Daniel in 1970. And then this is about the time that things take a turn in the family. And you already touched on some of this. I'm going to go over some, mm-hmm. a little bit more detail. Um, in the Kansas City Star on August 6, 1978, woman held in death of man in shooting. A 41-year-old Kansas City man was shot to death after domestic disturbance at a house. The victim, Elton Punchy Gray, suffered a single gunshot wound in the head and was pronounced dead at Truman Medical Center. Detectives who said they received conflicting reports from witnesses offered this account. After a loud vocal exchange inside the Chestnut residence, Gray, his stepson, and the woman in custody were walking out the front door about 12.30 a.m. when a shot rang out. Gray fell to the floor of the hallway, and the woman ran from the house. The stepson notified police of the shooting and called an ambulance. About 30 minutes later, police received a call about a person armed with a gun near 24th and Prospect. Two officers who were aware the call might be related to the Chestnut Street homicide saw the woman yelling and waving a gun in the air. The officers took cover behind their vehicle and ordered the woman to throw down the weapon. The woman ignored the officers and screamed that a man was directly across the street holding her nephew at gunpoint with a shotgun. When the officer discovered that no one armed with a shotgun was in the vicinity, they again ordered her to surrender. The woman dropped the weapon and was taken to police headquarters for questioning. And the woman in question that was taken was Janice Billy Miller. And that stepson that was mentioned in the article who called the police was Terry Blair. The next day... Elton Gray's obituary was published in the Kansas City Times, and it said he worked for a prior brass company, and he leaves one son, Danny Blair, and five daughters, Michelle, Wanda, Sandra, Donna, and Angie Blair. And that's where I believe that he was their father. But there was a great article that I sent you, Zelda, and I will probably hook it up on um, the website, like give a link. Oh, the one that went in depth to all the family members' crimes? Yes, that was excellent. It was um, published in the Kansas City Star on the 26th of September, 2004. And a lot of the following information I got from there, and I had some other sources as well. After the death of Elton Gray, Janice pled guilty, like you mentioned, or the Alford plea is more specific. And she was ordered to get psychiatric care. I mean, I was just as shocked as you were when I saw that, that Mm -hmm. she didn't serve any time. Mm -hmm. But given that she was seeing somebody who wasn't there Mm -hmm. when the police arrived... Well, and truthfully, it does, mental illness explains a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, and honestly, you know, not saying that children drive you crazy. Oh, they do. But she was very young when she started Mm -hmm. having children. And then she had a whole bunch of them in rapid succession. Yes. And that has an effect on you. Oh, I'm sure. And if she was not particularly mentally stable to begin with. Um, I can see where she was kind of pushed over the edge and they took mercy on her. And I don't know that it necessarily helped in the long run because, you know, 
you know how that all turned out but it's um it it is it makes you think doesn't it It, it's almost sad that they didn't get to her before that day Mm -hmm. to get her the help she probably needed long before that because then Mm -hmm. they could have gotten to the kids sooner Mm -hmm. because their path was already in motion at this point and that's where we get to walter lewis blair Terry's brother, on August 23rd, 1979, and we're going to talk about why he was convicted. There's a headline, and this is in the Kansas City Times, Murder, Rape Suspects Linked. And this article was written by Richard A. Serrano and Robert Fisher. Please bear with me because my glasses are crap. These are my backup glasses. My dog ate my (laughs) regular ones. So (laughs) if you see me going, oh, squinty, that's why. Um, A former jailmate of the man accused in the rape of Miss Catherine Jo Allen was charged Wednesday with capital murder in her Sunday shooting death and is being held under $3 million bond. Walter Blair Jr., 18, of 3354 Wayne earlier this summer was in a maximum security cell adjoining that of Larry Jackson in the Jackson County Jail. Jackson had been charged in the April 2nd rape of Miss Allen a 21-year-old Kansas City Art Institute student. An authority said she was prepared to testify at his trial. Blair was an inmate in the Jackson County Jail from January 22nd to July 16th. He was being held on charges of capital murder, robbery, and assault in the January 15th shooting death of 16-year-old Sandy Shannon. However, the murder charge was dismissed May 14th and the robbery assault charges were dropped June 27th. Miss Allen was scheduled to testify against Jackson in the rape trial despite four harassing telephone calls she received in June and July at her home. The rape trial was set for the criminal docket beginning Monday, but the case was not expected to be heard until next month. After the arraignment, the district attorney said, The reason I set such an extremely high bond is so the people of this community will know that this was a heinous, vicious crime. And though all homicides are bad, this is one of the most brutal this community has seen. The death of Miss Allen, who was abducted early Sunday from her apartment and shot three times in a vacant lot, triggered an intense investigation by a special unit of six detectives. And so that is what Walter Blair had been accused of. Mm-hmm. And during the trial, the jury was actually presented with taped confessions as well as physical evidence. Now, Walter later recanted his testimony, claiming the sheriff had coerced his confession. He went through many appeals, but in the end, he was put to death by lethal injection on July 21st, 1993. His obituary appeared soon after. And I'll include the articles and obituary on the webpage. And I skipped over an article, but he was found guilty in October 1980. I mean, not, yeah, that's right. And the jury recommended the gas chamber, which by the time he was put to death, there was no gas chamber in Missouri. Now we're going to move to Warnetta. She was the oldest child and sibling to Terry, and she had two children as a teen with a man by the name of Willie Holmes. I do not believe they were ever married. Her oldest son is William, born in 1974, and the next son was Diamond, born the next year. The sons used the last name Blair. A few years later, after the relationship with Willie ended, Nettie married Niola. Okay. I kept seeing it spelled N-O-I-L-A. Yeah, I've I've seen it consistently spelled N-I-O-L-A, but, you know... If we are butchering the name, apologies. That's all I can say. Um, she married Niola White Jr. And it's so funny because he either comes up as Niola White Jr. or Niola White III, but they're the same person. <laughs> Seriously. 
That's not confusing in the least. That's funny. He was 36. She was 23. And let me tell you a little bit about Naola. He was originally from Oklahoma and married his first wife in 1962, Pauline. Nyola must have lived in California for a time based on this headline I found in the Kansas City Times on July 18, 1964. Charged an assault. California man is arraigned here and clubbing. Mm. Nyola White Jr., 21 of Pasadena, California, was arraigned yesterday on two felonious assault charges in the shotgun clubbing late yesterday of a man and a disarming of a police officer a few minutes later. The defendant is accused of striking Curtis Albert, 35, on the head and right forearm with a shotgun butt in an alley. Patrolman Morton A. Height, who was in a police car nearby at the time, drove to the scene. White reportedly stuck the shotgun into the car and demanded the officer's revolver, which Height handed over. Police said White was subdued when a bystander grabbed him from behind, allowing the officer to reach for his riot gun in the car. And by the way, this incident happened at Prospect and Monagal. Mm. So it's all in that area of Terry's crimes. The couple married and had at least one son, Iola White, the fourth. <laughs> I know. It's just so confusing. Why is he the dad called Junior and not the third? I, um, mm-hmm. um, he was born on Christmas Eve, 1979. Then things went sideways, as we've discussed. Around the same time her brother, Walter, was on trial, Warnetta and her husband were charged with the murder of James Bell, a man who had been stabbed more than 30 times. His body had been found at the end of September 1980. And as you mentioned, she got out of going to prison by offering to testify, but she couldn't testify. But what you miss is that Warnetta actually filed for divorce so she could testify. However, however. I mean, it wouldn't have worked, but still. Yeah. During all of this, Nettie found herself pregnant. Mm. And in 1984, she gave birth to a daughter, Shana. That same year, Nyola pled guilty to murder and he was sent to prison. Sadly, in December 1987, Lil Shana died at age three. Mm. Around the same time, Marnetta's son, Diamond, kept finding himself in trouble with the law, finding himself in juvenile court several times for assault, car theft, running away from the McCune School for Boys, you name it, he was doing it. On December 11th, 1989, the following headline appeared in the Kansas City Times. Slaying victim's body found in apartment. Man lying on bed was tied and gagged. The police had not identified the man at the time, but believed him to be Pablo Gomez, a man well known to them, Pablo being involved with narcotics. Neighbors described him as kind and mentioned his girlfriend and her two children lived with him. Mm. Now, it wouldn't take long to find the culprit. It was Pablo's girlfriend, Juanetta. Mm. And this is the one where you said he um, suffocated. Mm-hmm. Pablo apparently had threatened to cut off her supply of crack. And so she tied him up and gagged him with the help of a friend. And Nettie ended up confessing, claiming that she never intended for Pablo to die. The plan was just to tie him up and steal the drugs. Mm-hmm. But after killing him, she and her friend did crack all night long. Yeah. It was party time. She was sentenced to 10 years in 1990. And as far as I know, she hasn't had any legal trouble since then. Mm-hmm. That said, her sons have had lots of legal trouble since then. Um, Diamond was the first to find his way to prison. He committed an armed robbery of a pizza delivery person. And I found this interesting uh, about the charges he faced. 
because it sounds like it was more than an armed robbery. Mm -hmm. In 1992, he was sentenced to 18 years on charges of unlawful use of a weapon, armed criminal action, kidnapping, and sodomy. He was released before 2009. (laughs) But wait, there's more. Because in June 2009, a man by the name of Montague Ashline was found shot to death outside an apartment building. Diamond and another man were charged with Ashline's murder. According to his accomplice, Albert Holly, what started as a robbery ended up as a murder when Diamond Blair shot Ashline. I believe he shot him in the head. But, oh wait, there's more. Two weeks after the murder, Diamond was picked up by police carrying the gun. Oh, he didn't get rid of the gun. No, he was charged with carrying the weapon and acted as his own counsel. Wow. He was convicted on both the gun charge and the murder. And he is currently serving life in prison at the Potosi Correctional Center. That's when I found out I I was looking through Missouri inmates Mm -hmm. and I was putting in some of these names and there he came up and then it hit me. Why is he in there? He should have been out for the other one. And then, Mm -hmm. but there's still a little more because I haven't yet mentioned Diamond's brother, William, that Zelda had discussed a little bit before. Just one month after Diamond was first sentenced to prison, older brother William was sentenced to 15 years in prison for armed robbery. He was released in 2003, but just like Diamond, he went right back to prison not long after his release. It seems that prison didn't dissuade William from pulling armed robberies. And you did discuss this a little bit, but he and three other men went on a bit of a spree, resulting in the 88 counts. Now, I can't leave off Big Brother Niola White the fourth, and what happened in 2001. Oh, you see, his dad, Niola Jr., had gotten his life, I guess, somewhat together after the other incident. He owned a furniture store in Kansas City. And on August 3rd, young Niola, 21 years old, went to his dad's store. Apparently, they didn't get along that well. But young Niola went regularly to ask his dad for money. Because that's what you do with a father you don't get along with. You ask him for money. Yep. And on this day, he went to the store to ask for money again. An argument ensued, and the older Niola asked his son to leave. And he didn't. Now, there was an employee in the store who left. Instead, young Niola shot his father in the head with a thirty-eight revolver, took his dad's wallet, and looked for more money in the store before leaving. And as he left, you'll love this, he took the time to lock the store up. Oh my gosh. They caught him on video. Niola is currently serving 30 years at Farmington Correctional Center in Missouri for second-degree murder and armed criminal action. Only 30 years? Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, Clifford Miller, Terry's half-brother. Yes. I have something to insert here. Did yes. you know that you cannot inherit from somebody that you kill? So, what oh. he, ha- he just disinherited himself from whatever the furniture store would have brought him. I don't think that's a concern considering that, you know, his dad died. <laughs> well, no, but that's what I'm saying is oh, that okay. he normally would have gotten, you know, as a kid, he would have gotten a share oh. of the inheritance, but he doesn't because you can't inherit from somebody what, you, that you killed. Well, that's probably good. Yeah. That's why they did that is so people wouldn't kill to get their inheritances. Well, and that's why people killed to get the insurance and try not to get caught. Oh, <laughs> so now we're to Clifford Miller, Terry's half brother. You would think that we're already at enough for this one family, but there's more because, <laughs> oh boy, half-brother Clifford Miller is currently currently serving life in prison plus 240 years 
at Western Missouri Correctional Center for several counts of assault, kidnapping, and forced sodomy. He had been in prison since 1994 after he abducted a woman outside of a bar. And, you know, what I found kind of cool was that, you know, you said that she took several months to heal, and she did. And then eventually she returned to a bar with her friend that was not too far from the other bar, Uh and she recognized him. Yep. And And he came up to her. He went up to her in the bar, grabbed her arm, and said, it's been a while since I've seen you. Yes. I forgot about that part. And I'm like, holy moly, holy moly. I'm surprised she didn't just off him right there. Oh, yeah. And as you mentioned with Daniel Blair, Terry's other brother, half-brother, he went to federal prison in Colorado for the drug charge. But did you know where he was selling the drugs? I think you did because you read the same article I did. <laughs> um, but our, our listeners don't. He was with another man outside an elementary school dealing crack in a oh. house right outside the elementary school. That's right. I forgot about that. I think that's it for all the family members that have spent jail time and all I know about his siblings. So that is the family tree of Terry Anthony Blair. One of the things that I thought was so interesting in several articles, they're described as a crime family. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, that assumes some sort of coordination amongst the people. And I'm like, these folks were not coordinating with each other. For the most part, they're doing just as much damage to each other as they are to the world around them. And so I'm looking at this and going, okay, yes, it's a family where a lot of crime was happening, but I don't think they were nearly organized enough to say that they were a crime family. Yeah, when you say crime family, I think the mafia mm-hmm. exactly you know they're working in racketeering you know in concert to commit crimes these right. are just like random stuff where people are scrabbling for survival and it's or even if they have been like in a gang where uh-huh. they're all working together but they they weren't no i mean i don't know if any i guess some of them could have been gang members but that never came up in any Mm-mm. of the newspaper articles Mm-mm. so i'm not even going to make that assumption yeah but and, and it's just it is astounding to me. And you know what's even more astounding to me? Is that they're, they have family members who mm-hmm. aren't like that. They have right. family members who don't go around committing crimes. And for all I know, they've got family members who like go to church on Sundays and volunteer at the grade school and stuff. I mean, they do. Might be a stretch, I, but you know. And being nosy like I am, that's probably why I like genealogy. I looked for the Blairs that lived in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And I found all these cousins and stuff mm-hmm. that are there. I mean, I, I didn't reach out. I was half tempted to go, like, can I get some information? Actually, I did reach out to one person mm-hmm. just on the off chance and I never heard from her, which mm-hmm. didn't surprise me. I mean, right. come on. But I had to try. Right. Oh, my gosh. But, oh, my gosh. I mean, but they look like, the, at least the ones who are still in Mississippi, mm-hmm. look like they're very involved in each other's lives and very supportive. And there's a lot of community in that. Mm-hmm. And the ones who end up in Kansas City. Well, and that, you know, if we look at this generationally, it's Mm -hmm. from his mother's side of the family that the crazy shit's happening. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, yeah, there were some questionable things happening on his dad's side, but not the criming, you know, just it makes you wonder, was Walter running off and leaving her? Was that because he was just a crappy guy Mm -hmm. or was there something going on with her? Yeah. Which I have to say, if she was having mental illness issues, that mm-hmm. can be a lot for a spouse. Yeah. And in a, a time where, 
you know, would he have been able to get the kids, you know, especially right. as a black family, you mm-hmm. know, because we all know courts don't treat them the same even today. No. Like what would have happened? And he was like, well, I can't save anybody else. I can save myself. Right. And especially given that his twin had a very steady, mm-hmm. respectable life mm-hmm. in St. Louis. Yeah. A stable life. Mm-hmm. It, it, it does make you go, it must have come from the mom's side. And it, it could have just been a simple mm-hmm. issue of the mental illness. Well, and that makes you wonder how much other mental illness is happening through this family. Mm-hmm. You know, when they have so many other family members who have chosen these really unfortunate lives mm-hmm. that it's like there's there's more going on here. And, and I actually, I really feel for the other members because it is really hard to be you know, a family member who has crazy ass siblings, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, think well, of how many times they probably were putting up money to bail kid, bail each other out. And like, you know, how many times? Because, you know, criminal convictions, but scratch the surface of, of oh, someone's yeah. behavior. So, you know, that there's a whole hellscape behind each one of those convictions. So it's like... Well, yeah. and how do they live down seeing the headline saying crime family mm-hmm. when they're like but but yeah most of us aren't that way yeah yeah i i feel for them so much and and the ones who are innocent in this family mm-hmm. because i can't imagine having to bear that burden mm-hmm. now remind me terry blair didn't have any children did he i think he might have but i couldn't find okay. any information on that okay not much i mean because those types of records aren't available at for somebody that current contemporary because he didn't i mean he killed his first wife right i think she might have had some kids by him okay but i'm not positive i'll have to look that up but you know i feel for all the kids of serial killers because Mm. i mean i can't even imagine having to bear that burden of knowing that your dad was a serial killer yeah there's um a really good show on investigation discovery actually there's a couple that kind of go along this line the evil within i think is one i can't remember the name and if i find it i'll post it somewhere but and uh the other one is the american monster Mm. and they will talk to family members Mm -hmm. including their children oh wow and one has robert lee yates oh wow his daughter and the btk i believe might be on one so it it is interesting and i do feel so much for them because i can't imagine the conflict in themselves Mm -hmm. like this is the man i know and i loved Mm -hmm. how could he have done this Mm -hmm. yeah and and we will cover robert lee yates at some point i've Mm -hmm. worked a little bit on his tree in the past it's coming Mm -hmm. interesting but speaking of coming yeah I am currently working on our next episodes. We have two episodes I'm working on at once. Ooh. Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. That's going to be so fun. Yes. So that one's got some confusion in it too. Not quite like this one, but it should be a good one. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to watch some Bonnie and Clyde movies, you know. (laughs) I actually have to see the, the Bonnie and Clyde movie that got the Oscars buzzing. Oh, I've never really? seen that one with Faye Dunaway and um Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. I've seen like the one that was done what back in the old black 30s? and white one. Yeah. 
I I love old black and white movies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just so hokey. <laughs> I used to love learn, reading about old outlaws too back in the thir- from the twenties and the thirties and uh-huh. and I had a fascination with the mafia before I got into true crime. <laughs> so how does that not surprise me? So like I, I Capone and all uh-huh. these others that kind of tied into that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my god. Yeah, That's I guess it awesome. shouldn't be a huge shock. I'm, I'm not surprised. <laughs> That's just how my brain goes. Not surprised. It's totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. You know, honestly, though, there's a museum in Las Vegas, if you ever get out there. It's a museum of the mafia. And it is really entertaining. So I've been through it. It's kind of cool. So if I were you, I would go there. Oh, my gosh. This was a crazy, crazy yes. podcast today and so much fun. And it's always fun with you. Aw, back at you, sister. This is and awesome. I love that we have people listening to us that aren't just our friends and stuff. I'm yeah. noticing that we're starting to get more and more listeners, which is so exciting. I know. It's like I want to be like, hi, mom. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. My dad was so excited about the Bell, Bell Star episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, dad, did you listen? And he goes, yeah, but then it sounded like the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And I'm like, <laughs> it wasn't like that, dad. I even listened to it. I make sure I don't uh-huh. do that too bad because I mm-hmm. don't want to lose people. Yeah. <laughs> but if, in my dad's head, that's he got lost and he shut yeah. down. So, so funny. <laughs> so I don't know that my parents listen. I know yeah. my mom has listened in the past, mm-hmm. but... I know my dad doesn't now. <laughs> well, oddly enough, I've been getting people who I didn't even know would be interested in true crime. And I would mention, hey, doing this like true crime podcast. And like suddenly people are like, no way. And so like people I had no idea had an interest in true crime are listening to this. So thank yes. you, listeners. Thank you. We love you. We now have like 1,500 downloads total. Woohoo! It's exciting. So we're making a little bit of impact on the world. Yes. You know, feel free to come and look at the website. And we're getting a lot more traffic on the website lately, even. Yay! Which and- I love because that's why it's there. It's so you can uh-huh. see what we're discussing and uh-huh. all that. So. And remember to share us with your friends. Yes. Pass us around. That didn't sound right. (laughs) Don't do that. But lots of people listen to our podcast. Yes. And you can find us on social media. Heck, we're even now on TikTok. So we don't post all that often on TikTok, like maybe once or twice a week, but Mm -hmm. we're there. (laughs) Yay. And I have become addicted to TikTok in the process. Yes, I love TikTok. <gasps> I do too. I, I what the bad thing about TikTok is I could get to watching and I realize, oh, it's been two hours. Oh shoot. I know it is the biggest rabbit hole. And mm-hmm. I've been following like all these his- history accounts and like crazy history you never heard of kind of stuff. And I'm like I, and all of a sudden I'll look up after I've watched these tiny little three minute snippets and mm-hmm. hours have gone by. And it's like <laughs> What what happened to my world? So well, I don't want to make you feel any worse, but it's only one minute snippets. Now I feel really bad. <laughs> it's not so bad. It, it gets addicting. I'm I'm following all sorts of interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not being all good and educational like you, mm-hmm. looking at history. I I, I <laughs> like I I find funny couples and uh-huh. 
stuff like Did that. Did I send you the one of the Aussie girl with the mansplaining shanty? See shanty? Yes. That may be my favorite TikTok video ever. Mm-hmm. Forever. I follow, yeah, I follow a lot of feminists and other stuff mm-hmm. like that too, but... I like the ones who get very passionate and I follow a lot of costumers cause, and makeup people because oh, it's just yeah. fun to watch. Oh, makeup people too. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's this woman now who does the like myths about Anne Boleyn because she feels like Anne Boleyn has been completely like destroyed <laughs> for no good reason. And she'll be like, myth number 57, Anne Boleyn had, a, had an affair with a French king wrong (laughs) and I'm just like I just love your passion about a woman who's been dead for hundreds of years so and and my poor husband I'm like oh watch this one honey it's really funny funny." animal ones and baby Uh ones get me every time (gasps) have you seen the the guy I post a couple of his videos who does the animals like weird facts about animals I kind of have you know there's an interesting story about him really and and this is affecting a lot of people of color who are on the app Mm. so there is a guy or a couple who copy his videos oh they're white people that will go and copy some of these videos and they have a bigger viewership (gasps) Uh uh-huh Oh, that's horrible. It is. It is. It's awful. So I want to follow him to give him that support. Mm-hmm. So anytime I find out somebody's doing that to somebody else, I go and I try to follow the one. Yeah, that's horrible. It, it's awful. I mean, that, talk about appropriation. Yeah. You can't even make up your own jokes. At least credit the person going, oh, I love that. Because some mm-hmm. people will borrow the sound mm-hmm. and, you know, lip sync on there a lot, uh-huh. which is great. Yeah, that's like still creative. But stealing it's, other people's content? No. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I do not approve. Nope. <laughs> Don't steal content, people. Just do your own thing. Exactly. Well, I've had a great time tonight, Denise. Thanks Same. for hanging out. It was fun. Now I'm ready to go to get some sleep. How about yeah. you? Same Z's. And I'll finish off the bottle of wine and I'll be set. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining us again. And next time we'll talk about either Bonnie or Clyde. I don't know which one will be up first, but possibly Bonnie because that's who I'm working on right now thank you so much for joining us on murderous roots where murder and family meet don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please leave us a review You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.